Um, I'm Jim, and I'm going to be speaking today, and as is Janice and Kathleen. Um, we're all from the Victorian Greens, and the reason that we're talking is that a few years ago, some of us got together and decided, like Jim, decided that um, we felt that the party, as it grew, was getting bigger. We're making more decisions that had bigger impact, and we didn't always feel that we were actually making them particularly well. Not always, sometimes we did, and sometimes we didn't, yeah? And we had a meeting, it was sort of like a little ginger group that got together, and we decided we needed more training facilitation, we needed to do stuff high, also just starting to introduce why we're here and what we're on about. Um, and nothing happened for six months, and I decided, and we heard Mary uh, Graham talk this morning, sometimes you've just got to do stuff. And I just decided, oh, I'm going to do stuff. I'm going to start a facilitated network in the Victorian Greens. And so that's informed a lot of my um, knowledge about what's going on around the party in Victoria in terms of our decision-making, in terms of our skills, and in terms of how we go about consensus. And we've done a whole lot of things in that facilitated network. We've run training sessions, usually two-hour workshops for members mainly in metropolitan Melbourne because until very recently we didn't have any budget at all, we were doing it all for free. Um, and we've been invited to help groups who are having trouble with big and tricky decisions, who are having trouble with um, conflict and um, running things like campaign evaluations <laughs> and all those sorts of things that some facilitators or some groups find difficult. So that's a bit of background on us three from Victoria who have all been involved. Yeah, um, many of you probably know, a founding member of the Victorian Greens. And so I think 92, yes, we met under, they met under the, <laughs> the peppercorn tree in Clifton Hill. Um, and Kathleen's been a long-term party member and facilitator. So the three of us have got a bit of experience in this. And, and I should explain, I went to Janet a few years ago and I said, I can't do this. I've been a journalist most of my life. I can't do this work anymore. I want to do what you do. What do I do? And she sent me to Group Work Institute, which is the leading trainer of facilitators in the country. And I now work for them, and I roll out facilitation training, and I go and go to groups and do the tricky stuff that I also do in the green. So that's a bit about me. And where I come from. So we're going to talk for 10 minutes or so each. Come in. This is consensus. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> And then we're going to throw it open to you to get us with all your fellow questions. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what we discovered when we started doing this work in the Greens, that skills were extremely patchy. People were pretty good about getting through an agenda, and they were pretty good about um, actioning the outcomes that they decided on, and they were reasonably good at listening to each other and doing the things that we try to do as good Greens in our membership code of conduct. But almost everybody, as I'm sure many of us have had difficulty with, has those difficulties around conflict that flares up in meetings and the hot spots and tricky bits, as we call them as facilitators, the curly stuff that happens that leaves ghosts in the room, things that aren't being said <coughs> but everyone feels, yeah, or attacks or abuse. I'm sure most of us have witnessed some of this behaviour from time to time. And it can, when decisions get really big and heated, and some examples are, for example, in Victoria, uh, we're a reasonably well-resourced branch of the Greens, and we have quite large budgets now because our membership base is so big, and our donations stream is pretty good, we've got good staff. And so when we're allocating resources for state and federal elections, we're talking about millions of dollars. And that's decided, as they are, most of these decisions are in the party by a state council, you know, on the recommendation of the um, campaign, campaign committee. Yeah. Um, and there have been occasions, and we don't need to go into detail here, but there's been occasions where we haven't been able to reach consensus, and what's happened is we've gone back to the default position because the consensus couldn't be coalesced. And you know, sometimes there's a feeling in the room that this doesn't seem to be quite working right. Yeah? And I'm sure we've all had that experience from time to time. So, you know, we've been going around the party and, um, you know, the, the general facilitation skills, uh, running good and effective meetings are also fun, yeah? Um, and conflict resolution and mediation, I 
Bit of that work too. Hello, welcome. Consensus. We're out there in uh, the other end of the room. <laughs> 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 yeah, it should be right to get up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the two sticking point for most of our facilitators and most of the groups and branches are around doing consensus really well when there's a big decision and there's a wide range of views. <laughs> and as I say, the sticky bits that pop up in meetings. And it's my theory. The two are very closely connected. And when we get the tricky stuff right by using our skills as facilitators and actually intervening and showing some leadership, we can often, well, we do, we create the trust and the goodwill by opening up the conversation to be able to come through as a group and make good decisions. So in the training that I do, I now place more and more emphasis on these tricky decisions and tricky bits and the, the passions that surround those decisions and get people to understand that when we do conflict, when we have conflict, it's basically because um, there are strong feelings and emotions attached to the ideas that people have and that we have to understand that and where that, those feelings are coming from in order to be able to get through and make a consensus decision really well. When I do the training, what I ask people is what do they understand of consensus and what do they think that it means? Just a quick throw around the room. People got any ideas on what, how they would say they would define it? Yeah. Well, I guess off the top of my head I would define it as not necessarily unanimity, but process of reaching a decision which everyone accepts. They might not all agree with it, but they all accept it. Yeah. Yeah. That's just what I would have thought. Pretty close. Has anyone got any other thoughts? I think that's a practical way to approach it because it's just too hard to reach unanimity always. It's only too long. Absolutely. I don't agree with it, but I can live it. Perfect, and that's the one the quotes we use when you say it, yeah. Essentially, the Group Work Institute, our definition and the model that I use, and I know that Janet does too, and Kathleen been doing some work with them, um, is that consensus is the pooling of all ideas to reach the best decision for the whole group. So I like that definition because it introduces the concept all ideas are valid. And to me, from what I've observed in the work that I do in this space, that's probably the biggest problem that we have, is that we haven't built the trust and goodwill often in our groups or in our party, um, state councils, wherever, to be able to let go of any preconceived notions that we have because we've got strong attachments to them for one reason or another. They may be totally emotional, they may be historical, they may be because of that experience, something's worked for us in the past. But unless we bring that openness to all ideas, we're not going to have the rich discussion that allows us to survey the terrain and discover, <coughs> once again, as Mary Graham said this morning, that there can be many truths, yeah? And that we don't always, we don't always benefit from pursuing only one of those truths. That if we can try and find a way that matches the needs of most of the people in the room, then we can arrive at a decision which we may not be 100% happy with. Yeah? And that's what um, building the trust and the goodwill, uh, being open to all ideas, and arriving at that sweet spot where we're able to have those discussions in a way that we can genuinely listen and genuinely hear all the concerns in the room. And part of doing that is what we're doing here. We're trying always, as facilitators, to equalise the space, to make it inviting, to make it participatory, to make it so that we're inclusive rather than exclusive. Yeah? And that, there's, that that part of the process is what we call uh, the maintenance of the group. That is equally as important as the task which is to get through the agenda and make the decision and then enact it, yeah? And so this culture that we establish when we do that builds that pool of trust and goodwill that we can then draw on 
when things get tough, and we know that they get tough. We've all been in meetings, I'm sure, where we've had some pretty big um, debates, often argumentative, and sometimes they get curly. Yeah. So those two things, marrying those two things together and being able to do them well, there's a whole range of skills, and this isn't a workshop where we're going to do hands-on stuff like most of the stuff that we do in the network. Uh, we wanted it to be a workshop for ideas and people to have some discussion. Um, is, is the way that on our observation in Victoria and the work that we're now doing and the party's given us a budget so we can actually roll out our training uh, in a professional manner and that we're not sort of busting our guts uh, to, to make sessions after work and still have the energy to carry them through. So um, the party's recognised that this work is starting to pay off. And, um, Janet's going to talk a little about the whys and the wherefores around um, how we came to be um, a party that relies on consensus for all our decisions. And I want to leave you with a couple of things. Firstly, um, the myths around consensus, and I think mo many of us will have heard these, and many of us may have experienced them. And I wrote a piece for Green Agenda recently responding to Sarah Madison about those myths because I felt that she was really perpetuating them rather than helping solve them. Yeah? And, and I said that they're true. They're true when they're not practiced well, when we don't practice consensus well, and that's why we need good training. That it's really slow is, I think, one of the biggest myths at all. It takes so long to, uh, you know, we like things to be fast in this pop pill society where we get on the internet and Google tells us everything in half a second, yeah? Uh, yeah, it can be slow. And often the reason that it's slow is because it's a big decision and that we need to survey the terrain and we need to include all the stakeholders and we need to make sure that the people who are going to be impacted are part of the decision, yeah? And so, you know, we've got various ways of doing that. And then there's what I call the safety pause. When we get to that hot spot where we just can't agree, do we have time to actually take it out to a working group and see what they come up with on our behalf? So then they have, and then come back to the next meeting and, and make a decision. But that safety pause, what it allows us to do is to recognise the what's at stake and that this is a big decision and if we don't get it right, we're going to lose people, either they won't come or they'll either undermine or reject the decision in some way. And that's what all the research shows. Um, and Janet, I don't know if you're going to touch on this, but I'll, I'll just touch on it briefly, that um, the work that we've done in the Group Work Institute by surveying the literature shows us that when um, groups make these big decisions by consensus, they're more likely to stick uh, for longer and better because there's ownership. Yeah? So that's, and that's one of the reasons we don't want to go into more detail. Um, so that's it's too close. It discourages dissenting voices. Well, yeah, if we don't allow all the, uh, the views into the room, if we don't welcome them as <laughs> gifts for our conversation, it certainly does discourage dissenting voices. So by not alienating dissent, by welcoming, and I don't even call it dissent. I just call them ideas. You'll often hear facilitators. Is there any dissent? I don't like to do that. Because what it says is that dissent is wrong somehow. You know, oh, we're just about to reach a decision. Please don't oppose it, you know. No, that's good. You know, it's good to have a different view. It's good for us to be coaxed out of our comfort zone. And if we're genuine about being um, the grassroots democracy and participation, then all those voices, including the ones who swim against the tide, are valid. And sometimes they are the most valid because they see things that are critical for us that we haven't been able to see for ourselves. And, we may, and part of that is that sometimes we've got blind spots. And they may be because of, uh, we're not self-aware enough to acknowledge that because of personal trauma, you know, Freud and everything else that goes into our psychological uh, makeup, or because of uh, cultural bias. Yeah, we often don't see things from the black person's perspective, uh, those of us who are white and middle class. Yeah? Um, and all those sorts of factors come into it. So self-awareness is something that we're now trying to really start to get to with our facilitators and understand our own fears and triggers and this is really important with conflict and nipping things in the bud and having those courageous conversations that we need to have to get through so that we can get to that stage where we can arrive at, okay, I can live with that. Yeah, I couldn't before. And one last thing that I always ask people to do 
um, which actually got from Duke Democracy. Um, I don't know if those of you are familiar with that the South, uh, South African um, system of um, consensus decision-making and facilitation, that you ask a final question. If you've got one dissenter or one or two, a few dissenters, people who aren't coming along with a decision, what would bring you, what would it take to bring you along? We want you in this room. We value your, your contribution enough to allow you to help us get you on site. Yeah? And so always, always I'm trying and we're trying now in the party to bring everybody along and to avoid the block and avoid the vote. Because, of course, what happens when we vote? Winners and losers. And that's Janet. <laughs> that's the cue for Janet. I just want to, final thing, before we pass to Janet, one last thing I want to say. When I talked about this at the AGM of the South Australian Greens a couple of years ago, Penny Wright was in the audience, and she said, oh, wow, this is great. She said, once when Scott came out of the... I don't, I'm going to ask Scott this. He came out of the party room and he presented to the media... And he just mentioned that, you know, we'd made by consensus these following decisions. And the journalists went, what? <laughs> what consensus? Well, you did what? Didn't you vote? And they're saying, we undersell ourselves. That's my view, as a political movement. Because consensus empowers us. It makes us the inclusive party and movement that our opponents don't come close to being. And when we do it well and arrive at that sweet spot, um, that is allowing us all to move forward together. And you don't often see that in big <coughs> activist or political movements. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> Janet. Great, great beginning to this session. Now, I have been meaning to write or prepare this piece about why consensus is so fundamental and important for Brent for about the last three years. It's been on my to-do list for a long time. So I finally finished this on the plane coming here this morning. So, and in fact, I know that it's got slightly too long, so I'm mostly going to read it, otherwise it's going to take me twice as long to get through these, these ideas. But I'm really pleased with where I got. Um, and it's basically, yeah, about what is so important, why is it fundamental to us, to Greens, and the way that we do politics. Going back 25 years ago, when we formed the Australian Greens and the Victorian Greens, actually it was just sort of a given that we were going to operate by consensus. There, I don't remember there being any debate about it. And from my perspective, I was an environment campaigner at that stage, and it was really all I had known. I led a very positive existence, and I worked with groups that, you know, operated as collectives. But generally, the people that came together to form the Greens, it was this expectation of, yep, we're going to operate by consensus. And even if I think if it wasn't articulated then, we were comfortable with it because it reflects the values of the causes. And I reckon it is the most critical and fundamental thing that sets us apart from every other political party and movement um, in the country. And, and I think, looking at it, I really think it is critical to the politics of the future. And you know, to use George Monbiot's wonderful term, the politics of belonging, I think consensus is a really fundamental pillar. Now, if you have a think about the four pillars of the Greens, of ecological sustainability, social justice, history, democracy, and peace and non-violence, think about those, and they are notable because they are all focused beyond the individual, and they encompass well-being as well beyond humanity and beyond the present. And yes, you know, we're working for the benefit of individuals, but basically our policies say that individuals are going to benefit by being a part of a healthy society, and part of sort of healthy environments. So, and in sort of the common cause language, those core values of the Greens are the values of universalism, the protecting the environment, unity with nature. I went through, I've listed them all of them yet. You know, world of beauty, social justice, wisdom, inner harmony, and particularly for our purposes today, um, the values of being broad-minded, of valuing equality, and a world at peace where we can resolve differences respectfully fairly. So I very strongly feel that our consensus decision-making reflects those values of universalism. Because making decisions by consensus involves building bridges, sort of reaching out and sort of resolving those differences, as Gibbon's been saying, seeing where there's common ground, putting yourself <coughs> in the shoes of others who are different and think differently to you, Sharing information, and sharing information is absolutely key because it is true that information is power, and when you are sharing information, you are sharing power. 
And so the decisions are then made on the basis of everybody understanding all of the ins and outs of the decision, what the pros and cons are going to be, who's going to benefit and how, who's not going to benefit, and just acknowledging that, yep, you know, there may be some downsides to this decision, but not trying to gloss over those downsides. Actually, people making decisions in the knowledge that, yep, there may be some winners and losers, but overall, it's the decision that we can live with, in the, which is my favourite um, term of what a consensus is it's one that we can all, all live with. And the other critical thing about consensus is that we have to acknowledge in making that decision that in fact there are stakeholders and interests who might not be in the room who need to have their perspectives included in the discussion as well and the decision making process. And so in contrast, of course, making decisions by voting, it always trends towards us and them and the division into us and the other. And to win in a voting situation, you don't have to reflect on and address alternative views. You just have to persuade enough people to sort of come over to your side. And you only need to persuade as much as possible, you know, as much as necessary, just to surprise a few votes over until the, you've got the majority. And once you've got the numbers, well, then you can vote and then you win. And if you look at, say, how voting operates in our political systems in the House of Representatives, where the government has the numbers, they actually don't need to do any persuasion or at all. Or they just say, right, no, this is what it's going to be, no matter how unfair, irrational, um, destructive the decisions might be. And they, they win without having to consider anything about the legitimacy or the validity of alternative perspectives. And in particular, they don't need to share information, and in fact, they will deliberately not share information because you don't want to be encouraging um, views and knowledge about things that don't sort of suit your point of view. They don't need to acknowledge who the winners and losers are going to be. They're just using the brute force of the vote to win. And, and, even, and even if they need to entice some more votes over the, over the line, they don't actually even need to do that on the merits of the decision at hand. They can just do it by sort of trading off one decision for another how factions operate. You've just got this block of votes that you can guarantee, yeah, we'll bring you uh, my block of votes over here to support you on this, but in return, I want you to support me on something that's entirely different. So the, the whole rationale for decisions don't need to be considered in that decision-making process. So, okay, so this consensus is a much more inclusive, much more egalitarian, much more um, a fairer way of making decisions um, um, very strongly believe, believe, but there are two core requirements that people have to agree to and to demonstrate if you're going to participate genuinely in a consensus process. I mean, there are just two that I can, I have nothing to prove, but they're pretty fundamental and they underline where the challenges of doing consensus in a political environment arise. And the first is that participants in a consensus process have to be committed to reach consensus. They have to be committed to accept that the decision that any that everyone can live with and can commit to and want to move forward with is a better decision than a decision that actually might benefit you or your cause more, but you know is going to have a pretty unfair impact on other people. And of course, in this commitment to try and reach consensus and potentially you know, shift one's position in the light of things that you learn and understand during the decision-making process, it's got to be held by everybody participating in that process. If some people in the process actually aren't willing to share information, they aren't willing to consider the perspective <coughs> as valid, and at the end of the day would actually prefer to hang out for a decision that's going to suit them better rather than somebody else, then the ability to reach consensus is severely compromised if not nothing possible. And crucially, of course, the participants in the process have to trust that their fellow commitments are committed to reach consensus, that they are being honest and truthful with them, are sharing all relevant information, and are willing to try and understand and honour the perspectives of other people. And so building that trust, as Jim's already alluded to, it can be really hard and it can, and it can take an awful lot of time. And that trust is particularly elusive in high-stakes political environments, where the default is that people are expected to be motivated by personal gain and there's a lot of stake. So that's the first prerequisite. You've got to actually be committed to reach consensus. The second prerequisite is to accept in that process that there is equity in the process rather than a hierarchical worldview that people who already have got rank and power for whatever reason deserve to have more rights and 
um, more of a say than others. And that's the dynamic that you absolutely see going on in our computer systems all the time. That people who are already powerful think, I am more important, my views are more important than other people's views. And in a consensus process, no one can pull rank and say that you know, their well-being or the achievement of their cause is more important than, and valuable than somebody else or somebody else's cause just because of who they are or who they represent or just because they have majority support. I mean, it might be that their cause is, in fact, the fairest and the best and just and noble, and it might be that they've got majority support because of that, or they might have majority support because they've hidden the real implications of their position for people, they have discounted the, the, um, any downsides as not being relevant, that they don't impact people you know, right here, right now, and they might have tapped into people's ignorance and prejudice about the issue in order to build that majority support. And in particular, that equity in the decision-making process that also encompasses two other things, two things that are fundamental to green values, and firstly accepting that the other species that we share our planet with also have rights and have to have those rights considered too, and they just can't be sort of laughed away, overridden or ignored, which is the usual response that I hear in the Senate when I raise the issue of lead possums or rare orchids. They're like, huh, you know, they're not relevant at all. And secondly, to acknowledge that future generations also have rights. And that, of course, is actually in conflict with our standard economic approach, which says that things that are happening in 50 years' time, they are discounted out of existence. They don't matter because they're not going to be affecting people right here and right now. So that's you know, the, the fundamentals of why consensus then it's the, you know, the wherefores, and, okay, we could imagine a situation where within the Greens we could build our skills and be able to do consensus well, but what value are our consensus processes out there in politics land where there is no trust and where adversarialism just abounds? And sadly, in my experience in the Senate, in a typical parliamentary day, uh, it is hard to make use of my um, consensus skills. Um, but... My philosophy of working with anyone who's open to working, working with me has paid dividends. And it means that I have got good relationships with people across party lines. It means that the marriage equality um, debate and our, the Senate inquiry, we've worked really closely with you know, other senators like um, Dean Smith and Louise Pratt and have built up good, trusting working relationships with me. And I know that what people most dislike about politics is that adversarialism just for adversarialism's sake. That's what they say. They just want people to be able to you know, agree on things and to work more cooperatively. And so by us modelling that, yeah, we can work together with others, I think it may go you know, some tiny bit towards rebuilding trust and respect in politics. But more importantly, I think based on our commitment to consensus are the consultation activities that we can do even within our current adversarial political system, where we as Greens can work respectfully and engage people in decisions that affect their lives. We can listen and take people's views on board to act on their concerns, to acknowledge them as critical participants who need to have input into our decision-making processes. And that's regardless of whether they're input, they're just you know, a small number of people whether, you know, on the basis of um, marginal seats, they are politically irrelevant, and but that and they are the people that are so often ignored and dismissed because of that. It can be really difficult to directly involve such people as equal participants in our decision-making processes, as opposed to just to consulting them. I and mean, it might be nice to say, well, let's, you know, let's involve in the spirit of, of having inclusiveness, let's see if we can involve all of those people. But it becomes unwieldy. We can't share all the information that we might like to share um, because of um, confidentiality concerns and the lack of symmetry. I mean, we might be able to share our information with other people and share their information with us, but it's putting us at an incredible disadvantage if we decide to go out and share all of our information without that happening. And your average person out there in the, in the street who hasn't got experience in consensus processes, it can be a while before they are willing to sign up to having that commitment to achieving consensus and a commitment to, um, to equity. But undertaking consultation as an input into our consensus processes means that that consultation for us is meaningful because it, it actually embodies our respect for people, our commitment to listen, and we know that we will take note of the findings that built into our processes 
rather than just being a bolted, a bolted on sort of tick the box consultation where the, what people tell you is just you know, universally ignored so often. So our challenge, of course, is to work out how to do this better because that is you know, fundamental of grassroots participatory democracy. How do we involve people in our decision-making process and our, and our political system? Now, no, we don't do it nearly as well as what we should be able to do to be consistent with our values and beliefs. Um, but what I do know also is that you know, as we work to do this better, that our commitment to consensus is going to lie past it because we bring people into our consensus processes. We will be building trust into it. So we will be building people's experience in hearing other perspectives and, and getting people to recognise that their views aren't the only views. I know when I've run consultation processes, actually getting people in the room to hear other people is the most profound thing. Because people come into these consultations and think, oh, you know, this is what everybody thinks. And then they realise that not everybody thinks that way. And then in dealing with that difference and to be able to work through that difference and to deal with those conflicting views and work through them. And in short, you know, we, what we are doing in that is helping to build that, that politics of belonging. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to give you a chance. We thought originally we had a little more time, but we're restricted to the hour. So, yeah, by all means, fire away. I think over here. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, the, the second one in terms of the veto, I think, goes straight to the point of. So, if you've got somebody there that says, "No, nah, I don't care what the rest of you think. This is my view, and so I'm going to block have not got that commitment to make. The way we get around that in the Greens is to say, well, in that situation, you know, do we then move to have a vote and we get a vote if we have you know, some seventy five percent usually in the Greens. The danger of that is you then easily get into people that say, Oh well all I need to do is sit back and say, No, nah, you know, and we'll go to a vote and then the numbers will be um, so it's really people who, you know, make that brave decision to say, no, I don't agree, do have to be able to articulate why they don't agree and why fundamentally they can't live with that decision. For a lot of people, <coughs> you know, you can be in a, in a room and make a decision and say, oh, you know, that's not the decision I've been made. Um, but look, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't feel that strongly about it. If that's what the rest of the room wants, what it's like, that's fine. Um, um, did you want to... Do the, the first, first one? Sorry, go back. I've forgotten now. I'm so involved in that. New members. Okay, every decision can be reviewed. Um, if it's not working for a yeah. large number of people, I wouldn't say the next month no. particularly, maybe six or 12 months down the track, but I am a great believer in uh, the circumstances have changed. We need to review this. Is it still working for us? And how, what changes do we need to make sure that it is? Yeah? And I don't see why new members should be any different from any other set of changing circumstances, shifting goalposts, to be able to do that. I think it's reasonably simple. I don't ever believe that we should say, right, that's fine, we're never going back. That's stupid. And I've heard that people say, oh, you can't go back on a consensus decision. I don't know where that comes from, but... Uh, there's a couple of people over here, and then we'll come back to you. I mean, in my experience, it doesn't really happen much. No. And most people who come to the new group are actually quite timid. I mean, to find those people, you know, introduce them to is really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> most people are very considerate of coming to the group. The idea that everything is free flowing and you don't have any discussions, that's rubbish. That's not democratic. That's just um covert thing. Mm. And so you might say, because I actually probably am a bit more hardcore, I might go sometimes, you know, if you're facilitating, you might go, yeah, we're going to play this. Yes, we're going to play this. We've been arguing this for a long time. But the idea, I guess, is, like, what are you aiming to do? And sometimes the idea is that debate can waste time, but is it really? You know, like, debate can actually be powerful because that. Uh, there's a couple of people over here, and then we'll come back to Roseanne, so in the group. Yeah. Um, Marcus Ford from Greenson. I joined, I wanted to kind of comment on a question. The comment in support of what you said, I joined the, uh, the Greens probably as a relatively new member um, in a time when Campbell Newman caused a lot of havoc in, in Queensland, and I really was after therapy. <laughs> I wanted to go into branch meetings and, and be with like-minded people and discuss issues and um, it was actually um, 
a little bit disappointing that there was so much um, logistics and administration and let's organize posters and phone banking and so forth. I said, okay, let's get this all out of the way. And then, no, no, time is up. It's <laughs> 10 p.m. and we're all tired. Um, so I, I completely agree with, with the point. And, uh, but I found now there's other forums and, and speaker series and so forth for that debate. The question is around the, the way that you've all explained the consensus seems to, in a way, um, have only these, these two options of adversarial and consensual. So there's the adversarial option of voting, and then there's the consensual option you've described. But I see there's two versions. We've just had um, Bob Dick at QUT he gave a master class on action research, and, and he's a mediator in conflict resolution in a number of um, kind of scenarios, and he's explained kind of a third option, which I would kind of call uh, there's fast consensus and, and slow consensus. So everything that you've described, he would call dialectic. He would say, well, you're actually not um, drawing a Venn diagram of position A and position B and looking at the nexus, which is actually then, then small, and the majority is probably what people don't agree with, but he calls it to build agreement from disagreement, which is actually a third option altogether. And it's then probably at the end of the day consensual, but a slower process. So he would use Delphi method or Socrates kinds of questioning in order to arrive at that. Um, so I was wondering to what extent um, a dialectical theory, or you know, looking at say uh, what, what people in communication studies would call dialectics, is that very compatible, or is it something completely different to the way that the Greens look at consensus building? We're very pragmatic and yes. very practical <laughs> in our approach to decision making in the party. Okay, I think that's fair to say, yeah, um, and that comes out of experience as activists. Yeah, and part of it is process and structure, part of it is facilitatory leadership, and actually feeling the energy and the mood in the room. I think we're getting to a consensus on this. Can we have a straw poll? Do we want a autocracy? Whatever, we can use all those techniques. So I am a little bit impatient with the academic approach to consensus and facilitation, because I find it too much theory-based and not based enough on practicalities and what's actually happening in the room. Yeah? So I'm open to all ideas, but to me, what you're describing is actually what we do when we do consensus really well. Yeah. And you do, I mean, that slower process, if it's a big decision and there's a lot of diversity in views and a lot of different views, yeah, it's going to take a long time. Whereas, you know, you can, you can read the room and say, well, this is a, a decision that we're basically in agreement on and yeah. we can get that over and done with it now. You don't need to sort of go through a, a long mm-hmm. process. Um, yeah, I, I actually don't, don't see a division between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to hit from Roseanne and then come back to you. Sorry, sorry. You go first, Roseanne. Okay, sure, thank you. Um, so I wanted to respond to a couple of things. So first of all, about the question about people who are less intellectual or less verbal <coughs> and you're, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to use the words you use and look to characterise that. Um, there are two things. One is acknowledging that intelli- intelligence, intellectuality and verbal ability is a power mm-hmm. and that using that power can be a dynamic that's problematic and that someone who's um, saying, oh, I'm not comfortable with this, I'm just going to block it, is possibly coming from an emotional perspective and a position of powerlessness that maybe needs to be addressed. Yeah. So one of the ways that, that sometimes gets dealt with when we're in these kinds of spaces, I mean, yes, you're right, sometimes we go, okay, we'll do it on the numbers, but what I've seen in the last five years in the Greens is much more often that someone will say, okay, so why do you need to just block it? What's going on? Is there, can we get a little subgroup to go away and workshop what's going on for you that is making you feel that way, come back with a wording you're comfortable with, and then we'll see if the wider group can incorporate whatever it was and if you're more comfortable. And I have, out of, I don't know, 400 conversations we've had, only ever seen it then go to the numbers twice mm. when that little subgroup has come back. Mm. Because usually the subgroup come, works, hashes it all out in the subgroup, comes back, and the rest of the group goes, ah, oh, thank you, you weren't able to articulate it, those other people helped you articulate it, fantastic. So that's one. And the second thing was about um, Kathleen's point about, and sorry, this isn't a question, this is a contribution. Um, the whole thing of mine is a contribution. <laughs> um, I feel like I, you know, I, I think, oh, actually, it can be a question. Um, 
We, I have also noticed this lack of discussion happening. I suspect that there is some stuff going on about a groupthink online slam culture that happens, that there's a way of being perfect and correct, and that if you don't meet the standard of what's acceptable, if you're human, if you have a failing, if you don't you know, cooperate, then you get slammed. And the nuance, that lovely thing that Aunty Mary was talking about this morning about the black dot in the white yin yang, doesn't exist anymore. So now I'm going to turn into a question. I was just going to make a statement. How can we create an online culture of <laughs> given that we are increasingly disparate, disparate and increasingly not face-to-face in the I can make a quick contribution. Um, I, uh, I posted in an online Facebook group. Um, they were supporting a, a video thorpe in a forestry thing. I said, well, that's true. Come and sign up and get on board. They, they, then, they, they didn't want that. They didn't want a, you know, a call to action to support a particular candidate. So the way they handled that was they got to me on message and said, look, sorry, we've deleted your comments for this reason, whatever else. And so they engaged with me about the way my behaviour wasn't their group norm. And for me, that was fine. I said, no worries. You know, but, 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 well, well, where was the Labor candidate? You know, show me their face, whatever. So, so, so they, it can be done. It's hard because you do need to have good facilitation online, and yes. doing good facilitation online is something that, yeah, I don't know, there aren't very many skilled examples of it. Uh, like if you've got Facebook groups which have relationships of trust between yeah. the people, yeah. Yes. then yeah, that works brilliantly. Yes. You have those yeah. conversations. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm aware of losing it, but it's a space and a tool for pressing a button and watching the green or the, you know, so for those of you who don't know it, you, it's a discussion space and then if you agree with the proposition that's been put in, you click agree, if you click abstain or disagree or block and if you've got 20 people, then as people agree, the circle slowly gets greener and greener and you can see people who are currently disagreeing, there are kind of some orange things and if someone's currently blocking, it's a red angle and you can have to keep having the discussion and try and talk about it and people can then change their minds and slowly you get to a point where it's a greener circle and when it's 100% green, positions passed by consensus. It relies on online facilitation tools that I don't think we have yet. So that's, I think, I'm putting that out as something we need to work on. I think we might be ready for Simon and then Sorry, come back That's to all right. Um, I just have a few points. I'm sceptical of consensus, maybe um, partially because my experience of it has always been awful. Um, <laughs> But I, I have some bigger sort of sense. I think my biggest skepticism is of consensus that I, that I fear that it doesn't actually deal with ideology or political ideologies. And the fact that sometimes we come to a room and we people have fundamental different political ideologies and that coming to it together on something that we can all agree with is actually potentially impossible. And so I think about, you mentioned same-sex marriage. I can't come to consensus with the Australian Christian law yeah. on that. I can't see consensus between the uh, environmental campaigners and the Adani Corporation if they were to come to the table because that's sort of everything we can deal with is probably going to cook the planet. And that's not something... So I think that there's, a, there's got to be a question of ideology that's part of this. And I actually see that this happens in the Greens as well. So while we think that we all have the same political goals, I've been involved in policy developments, you know, in, in policy processes in the party where I've seen, you know, discussions on education, for example, which is quite a contentious issue in the party, where there is actually clearly fundamental ideological differences of people coming in on what they think an education system looks like. And when we try to get consensus on that, you end up with this mixed policy that makes no sense, basically. And that's, you read some of our, particularly at uh, previous times where we had much more detailed policy documents, they made no sense because yeah. we're coming together, because, because there were fundamental differences that were trying to come together to, together to look the same. Uh, and it didn't work because it, because of those differences weren't actually acknowledged that there were fundamental differences and that you couldn't have both of those things in the same document. And so I think that there has to be, it, I feel a lot of this conversation feels like it's been an either or, like we have consensus or we have this adversarial system which is evil. And I actually think that that's not how democracy works. I think sometimes consensus is useful and sometimes it's not. And it's actually part of the process is acknowledging when it's useful and when we can achieve it. And sometimes acknowledging, well, actually there are ideological differences here and these two ideological differences can't work together sometimes. And so we're going to actually have to have acknowledge that and some, at some point actually say, well, our party is this ideology, it's not this ideology. And sometimes that does mean 
the people who hold that ideology might be the losers, but that also might mean that they're not necessarily, this might not be the party for them. Yeah. Um, and that's okay as well to say that. I have one other point, and that's to say, uh, one of the other areas that I've seen, and there's one area where I think consensus never works, um, and that is when you're choosing representatives or choosing people to represent uh, in a body or to be in a leadership position, etc. And I saw, for example, um, the new leadership of the Victorian Greens in the state parliament was decided by consensus. I'm not sure how that was done, but it seems that always seems odd to me because most of the times that I've seen that occur, what actually occurs is you have the potential of having two candidates and one person gets quietly pushed aside. And I've seen this happen more. And I'm not saying this is what happened in Victoria. I'm just you saying I've seen this in the past. So I don't know what happened in Victoria. But you often see the potential of one person getting pushed aside quietly. They get pressured out of the role. And so that you can say we've done this by consensus rather than having votes and having the potential that someone might look like, you know, that they were the loser in this situation. And that is never a good outcome when people just get pressured. And I've seen people this happen in the Greens in other, in other roles quite frequently where people get pressured out of roles. And I think that when it comes to electing leaders, electing representatives, electing Senate candidates or candidates, you know, in the ACT we used to elect our candidates by consensus at a meeting, which was just ridiculous because what happened was people got silently pushed out instead of being able to have the chance to, you know, have their say and have their ability to, you know, even if they weren't going to win, to be able to be part of the process. And so I think that in those kinds of situations, consensus that works. I'm happy to start yeah. responding, and they're all really good points, and ones that all that I've, I've grappled with over my, my years of, of thinking about consensus. Now, I think on the difference in ideologies, I think the fundamental thing is what it's doing is to actually unpack those differences in ideologies in the process, because we often don't do that. And it can be that, essentially, it's often the difference in ideologies are based on unknowns. And people have, one group of people have a sense that this, you know, by following this direction, it's going to head us towards, you know, this nirvana or wherever, and other people feel just as strongly that, no, we've got to follow this direction in order to get to that, that nirvana. And there's actually no good, solid evidence as to why one is, you know, is more appropriate than the other. And the other. And I think it's actually acknowledging that, you know, the education um, debate that we have in our policy direction, I think, is a, a, a probably a good case in point. Um, and then the, once you've unpacked that, it may, uh, it may be that, you know, you can bring together a position that acknowledges that there are things that are unknown, that, you know, that there are different ways of doing things, that perhaps, you know, we have to be open on different ways of doing things, um, and acknowledge that there that, that, that there. Um, but then some of the differences come down to where I see, if you're going in the other part of my, you know, prerequisites to consensus, is one is that commitment to reach consensus, and that's where consensus breaks down in our party, because in fact there are people in the room who aren't really committed to reach consensus. They really do want to get the outcome that they personally prefer and aren't genuinely going to shift their position. But secondly, you do have to, it's, consensus is based in principles of equity. And so you're not going to come to terms with a consensus position in the Dani because the very things that they are doing is not equitable for the future generations. So, and that's, you know, people have looked and told them another the forest campaign that you should be able to sort of sit down and reach consensus positions, you know, with the forestry workers and can't we all work happily together. But no, I can't because... Glenn Oka did. Glenn oka has got a story, but there are... Well, you know, I, I think it's important work, to say... With the workers, with the workers yeah. Workers, and the protesters. In a process yeah. where you have got ongoing destruction yeah. of our old growth forests. It's just not going to be possible. You're not going to reach a consensus yeah. decision that says, all right, well, we'll let you continue to log, destroy half the forest. No, that's not going to work. <laughs> I um, think, yeah, I just want to add... To, oh, Kathleen, did you want yeah, to... Yeah, well, can I just add, add to the third yeah. one in terms of electing leaders? The New Zealand Greens, so they have their, um, their leaders by consensus as well. But I agree with you that it's very problematic because basically in the leadership position, there is so much individual personal gain to be gained from being in that leadership position. Most people stick themselves up for leadership. They, they deeply want that position. It's very hard to you know, make a judgment to, to you know, Oh, by consensus, that we reckon that you know you're going to be a better person than that person. I'm just going to add very quickly. I think your points are all valid, um, and the ideology, the ideological divides sometimes will never be crossed by any amount of discussion or voting. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, and that's another set of problems. 
But I also think this um, thing about people being heard should not be underestimated. And yes, it won't apply in those situations where there's huge corporate power that is never acknowledged and um, is, is never accountable, largely. You know. Um, but it can be in the workplace situation. Glenn Oka, the founder of Gripwork and Common Ground, has this fantastic story in her books about the workers um, at a forest protest in um, in Gippsland, and or somewhere in Victoria, in central Victoria somewhere, and um, they, they were regularly, the workers couldn't get their work done, the protesters weren't happy with the way the protests are going, and she sat down and they negotiated how they would each get the outcome that they desired, and they, they worked together so that the protesters could get on the media, and the forest workers, it's bizarre, I know, but it involves a whole lot of listening that never usually goes on, and that's my fundamental point that there can be common ground sometimes, you have to have a willingness to speak. Just that one quick thing, sorry. That, um, I think, you know, it's really great points. And I agree that there's a, there's a real value to doing ideological debates and having these debates and having the conflict play out. And that there's a lot of skills you can take from consensus decision-making. I guess my point was, though, that consensus isn't always the only answer and that you can actually have these debates and these discussions and still have a vote at the end. It's the problem is that when sometimes you you go straight to the vote rather than having the deliberative processes. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you have to go to the vote at the end because you're never going to agree. And yep. it's you're, okay making, to have different... you're making judgments about what yeah, the outcome right. of one one course of action is and other incidents. You know, impossible to know whether one course of action is actually going to be better than the other. We are on time, are we? Yes, we're, we're going to have to close it off there, I think, everybody. Thanks for a really good discussion, yeah? Thank you. Well, I just wanted to acknowledge the conflict that's, you know, that's really bad for our party that's going on like the conflict. Yep. And I just wondered what you experts on consensus bring to that as a... Uh, <laughs> give, give Janet yeah. a hard time. How long have you got? <laughs> But it, it seems to me that it's a very yeah. <laughs> a discussion today has been all mainly focused on face-to-face meetings yes. and some of the biggest challenges I think the Greens have are probably where we have to scale up to national decisions or statewide decisions. So I know it's, I know we can't discuss it. But, yeah, it's um, a big topic. Might be one for the pub. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. But also, I think this is really closely. I think was discussed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so much of what's going on in New South Wales is about power. Yeah. No. And and that's what we have to acknowledge and unpack.